Welcome to the final Nukes of Hazard podcast episode of 2020. This year, we talked about the history of nuclear war planning, heard firsthand from a survivor of a chemical weapons attack as he shared his painful story, learned about how presidents came to have such singular control over our nuclear weapons, and much more. All of us here are really proud of the work that we've done, and I hope that all of you have had as much fun listening to these episodes as we've had making them. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm your host, Jeff Wilson, a policy analyst here at the Center. For this episode, we put out the call for questions from you, the listeners, for our senior policy director, Alex Bell, and me to answer. We really like doing these mailbag episodes, so I'm going to say it here up front. If you have a burning question about nuclear weapons, U.S. national security policy, or nuclear pop culture, no matter how wonky or weird it may be, ask it by emailing us or contacting us on social media. We will do our best to get back to you, and who knows? Your question might even trigger us to explore a topic so much that we want to turn it into a whole podcast episode by itself. But let's jump in and turn the show over to Anna, who is going to lead us through your questions. My name is Anna, and I'm the Communications Director at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. We got so many great questions from listeners across the country. Let's start off with a few questions about the incoming Biden administration. We got a lot of questions about President-elect Joe Biden's positions on nuclear policies and what could realistically change once he is sworn in. First, let's start with a question about the moment Biden is sworn in. At Robot Wrangler on Twitter asks about the briefcase used to carry the nuclear codes, so to speak. He asks, so, if Trump is in Florida while Biden is inaugurated in D.C., where is the football? Jeff, do you want to take this one? Yeah, thanks, Anna. Uh, this is a great question. Um, the nuclear football is this briefcase that you'll often see a military aide carrying behind the president. And what that is, is it's a system for should, God forbid, we need to launch a nuclear attack. The president can do it from that briefcase. Uh, there's a whole command and control scheme set up in there. So I think the capriciousness of this administration, what happens if Trump doesn't show up to the inauguration? What if he's down at his club in Florida? The football's down there. How at noon on inauguration day does Biden get the football? Is there the potentiality for a gap in nuclear command and control between one president and the other? And this is a really good question. I'm really glad that, that we got it because I honestly didn't know the answer to it. And so we actually reached out to our friend Stephen Schwartz um, at Atomic Analyst on Twitter about this. And uh, he gave us the download. Basically, there are three, quote, nuclear footballs, these nuclear briefcases, sort of that are readied at any one time. Um, there's one with the president. There's one with the vice president. And then one that's kept in a secure location or with the designated survivor. And it is possible to, you know, make another one of these if the situation is necessary, like it could be here. So basically, there would be a football down in Florida and then an aide standing by waiting for Biden to be sworn in on Inauguration Day. 
um, and then to become Biden's, you know, to carry Biden's nuclear football. Basically, before he's sworn in, the president and vice president get a nuclear briefing, a nuclear weapons briefing. You know, they would be issued their biscuits, which are the actual codes that ensure that they are indeed the president or the vice president and that they are able to launch a nuclear weapons strike should they need to. And essentially, the footballs would be in either location. Uh, new President Biden is sworn in at 12 o'clock. Trump's codes become invalidated. Biden's become activated. And the handoff just sort of takes place like that. Now, an interesting question that Alex brought up is who becomes the designated survivor? There's not going to be a cabinet that has been Senate confirmed yet. And so, you know, a designated survivor, anytime that the president and vice president are anywhere. Somebody else in the chain of command has to be in a secure location should uh, an assassination attempt happen or should a nuclear strike happen. So there is a cabinet level secretary who is able to respond to a nuclear attack with that third football. And so I think that this is a really interesting question. On inauguration day, there's no cabinet secretary. Who becomes the new designated survivor? Now, we will be asking Stephen Schwartz that question in a podcast episode in January before the inauguration. So, uh, you know, we will be learning a little bit more about the system, a little bit more about sort of that question that I'm definitely going to ask him when he's on the show in January. So hope people that are interested in this question stick around. I think that's what I really love about these listener questions is because I've never actually thought about the exchange of the football on inauguration day. It's, it's not like they're up there on the, on the stage in front of the Capitol building and you see them just hand off a briefcase to each other. Um, so I appreciate that, you know, even after all these years of being a nuclear nerd, uh, there's still questions that come up that I had never even thought about before. Uh, and the whole issue brings up a, a much larger issue. Uh, that we've talked about a lot during the Trump administration is whether or not we want to continue with a policy where only one person in our government has this ultimate and unchecked authority to use nuclear weapons. Uh, that's been how we've done it uh, for some time. I think that people became a little uncomfortable with the idea that that President Trump had that power or you know will have that power until January 20th. So, you know, perhaps it's time to, to have a conversation about a system where we have checks literally all throughout the process, including the nuclear process, you know, with the two man rule of, of turning the keys to actually launch a nuclear weapon. Do we really want to put this power in one person's hands alone or do we want to spread it out a little bit just to have that check in place? So, you know, something that potentially could become a discussion point in the coming years. Wow. Yeah, that is super interesting. Um, I love that. It that one question brought up a, a ton of other questions as well. Alex, why don't you go ahead and take this next one? Adrian from Brooklyn, New York asks, what are the biggest, most consequential, and fastest ways we'll see a change in foreign and nuclear policy from the Trump to Biden administrations? And how soon will it happen? Because if I survive COVID just to end up dying due to nuclear holocaust, I'll be pissed. Uh, I totally get that, Adrian. Alex? <laughs> I, I, you wouldn't be the only person, uh, Adrian, I think that would be a little upset about that situation. What I think we'll see uh, first and foremost uh, in a Biden administration is sort of the return of U.S. leadership on arms control and nonproliferation issues, a consistency in our approaches. Uh, you know, you're not going to have the same exact kind of 
diplomatic process uh, with North Korea as opposed to Iran, you know, most importantly, because North Korea actually has nuclear weapons, Iran doesn't. But you're not going to see such a disparate approach where we're, you know, reaching out hands and and talking about love letters with one particular country and exerting maximum pressure on another, which, by the way, has been a maximum failure. So, again, a, a consistency of approaches, actual expertise, long term, you know, sort of experts who've been working on these issues for a long time in the key places throughout the government. And, you know, and a seriousness applied to these challenges that we're facing. Every single nuclear threat facing us has become bigger and more complicated over the last four years. And, and President-elect Biden comes in with a wealth experience, you know, potentially one of the most knowledgeable presidents on nuclear issues that we've ever had. So you, I think you're going to see that commitment from the White House to really dig down and take on these challenges in all these particular areas. Wow. Um, thank you. It is really comforting to know that so much can change so quickly. Okay, Jeff, why don't you take a shot at answering this question from Michael in Honolulu, who wants to know what the Biden administration's position on the use of tactical nuclear weapons in conventional situations is. Sure. This is an important question because over the past four years, we have seen a sort of a, a proliferation of thought that the United States needs to be developing new low yield or tactical nuclear weapons. There's a bit of disagreement on how those two terms interact with one another. But basically using small scale nuclear weapons, weapons that are below sort of the strategic threshold, the deterrence threshold to augment conventional forces. So is there a use for a nuclear weapon that is below the deterrence threshold? And that's a scary question. This idea that we need to produce more more usable nuclear weapons is a particularly scary one. And I think that this is going to be a return to previously long-held U.S. policy, that there is not a place for those weapons. Our sister organization, the Council for a Livable World, actually sent presidential questionnaires to every single presidential candidate who ran in 2020. And just to highlight what Vice President, now uh, President-elect Biden, said, I think, are two important answers. One was he was asked, do you agree with former President Ronald Reagan's statement that a nuclear war can never be won and so must never be fought? And he said, yes, our nuclear arsenal should be managed in a way that deters the use of nuclear weapons and makes nuclear use less likely. The use of even one nuclear weapon would be catastrophic, cause significant casualties, and result in enduring radiation that could affect millions of humans as well as the environment there would be no winners in the nuclear exchange. I think that that's a very clear and important answer. And then at the same time saying, do you support the new low-yield nuclear weapons called for in the Trump administrations? No, the United States does not need new nuclear weapons. Just straight, clear-cut, definitive answer. We do not need these to maintain our nuclear deterrence posture, and they will not be useful or used in supplementing conventional forces. I think that that's really, really important. Okay, we have a few more questions about the incoming Biden administration. Chris from Colorado asks, what are the chances of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty being ratified under a Biden administration? Alex, would you like to take this one? Uh, I'd love to, Anna. Actually, this has been an issue that I've followed for some time. Ratifying treaties is hard. Getting the Senate's advice and consent requires 67 members uh, to all be moving in the same direction. 
which if you're any observer of, of what's been happening in Washington lately, you know that getting to 67 is, is quite hard. But that said, the effort in looking into how the United States can finally fulfill its commitment to ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, uh, that's something that the administration is going to have to look at. When we got the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty indefinitely extended in 1995, so that's basically the, the most important treaty in the nuclear space. It's what keeps us in balance, slows proliferation. That indefinite extension, the United States and other nuclear weapon states made commitments, one of which was pushing for a, a complete end to nuclear testing worldwide. Now, 1995, it's a long time ago, and we still haven't gotten this done. Most of the world, thankfully, has ratified the CTBT, but there's some key states, including the United States, uh, others including China, Iran, Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, India, Pakistan, North Korea, all outside the treaty at this point. Uh, so we have some work to do. And uh, I would say, you know, one of the things that we could do here at home, as we're, you know, also trying to encourage those other countries to go ahead and ratify, is really remake the case, both in Congress, to senators, but also to constituent publics. Uh, a lot of people think we already have the comprehensive nuclear test ban, uh, because we haven't tested a nuclear weapon since 1992. We haven't done an explosive test since the 1960s. Uh, so there's a, a lack of familiarity. People think this is a problem that's already been solved. Um, so you have to go through the process of, of educating people, uh, reminding them that this is something outstanding that we need to do. Um, also reminding people that if we don't get it done, uh, threats like we saw this past spring from the Trump administration's reported consideration of doing a quote unquote demonstration nuclear test not for the health of the stockpile, but to simply scare China and Russia to the negotiating table. You know, that's the kind of threat that will be present until we once and for all uh, lock down this treaty. Uh, not only do I think it's doable, uh, I also think it's just common sense. Uh, it's in the U.S. national interest to ban forever uh, nuclear tests around the world. Uh, we just need to we need to make the case and do it properly and not try to rush a vote if we don't have the votes in place. Uh, at the very least, the Biden administration can recommit uh, to the U.S. commitment to a moratorium on nuclear testing. Um, that's step one. Everything that comes after that should be in, in the service of eventually driving towards a, a situation where we could gain the Senate's advice and consent. Well, that was great to hear. Seems like there's some reason for for hope there. All right. Last question about the Biden administration in particular. Someone who calls themselves a concerned citizen from Washington, D.C. asks, how can the Biden administration rein in nuclear weapons spending when the NDAA essentially gives the Nuclear Weapons Council unfettered control of NNSA's weapons activities budget? Jeff, this seems like a good question for you. And could you start off by saying what the NDAA and NNSA are? Yeah, this is an incredibly nuanced and interesting question. It also, unfortunately, is a very, very wonky one. So I'm going to do my best to stay away from the super wonk side of it and, uh, and sort of parse this apart. The NDAA is the National Defense Authorization Act. It's a bill that Congress passes every single year that essentially sets the spending strategy for U.S. Department of Defense initiatives. It includes things like what are the active duty service personnel going to be in the Army, Navy, 
Marine Corps and Air Force. Uh, it also, what are the new major buys and weapons programs? How many new F-35s are we going to be buying? Things like that. The National Nuclear Security Administration is the federal agency within the Department of Energy that also sort of partners with the Pentagon and the Department of Defense that administers U.S. nuclear weapons activities. The Nuclear Weapons Council is a council that's made up of the Secretary of Defense, amongst others within the Pentagon, that exercises sort of a notional bit of oversight to the nuclear weapons uh, production and development that partners with NNSA. So it's this very sort of convoluted oversight thing that needs to happen here. Now, what this question is getting at is that in the 2020 NDAA, when it was originally released, conservatives sort of balked at the fact that they felt that $2.1 billion that was necessary for nuclear weapons development wasn't included. The Department of Energy had not included money for new weapons development, or I mean, they'd included money, plenty of money for weapons development, but not enough is what some conservatives felt. They also felt that the Department of Defense should play a larger role in actually setting how much money should be spent on nuclear weapons activities within NNSA. And so essentially what this provision has done in the Senate is make it so that before the Department of Energy can submit its budget to the White House, the Nuclear Weapons Council has to say whether or not they are proposing an acceptable amount of money towards weapons-related activities. And then they have to tell the White House, yes, this is an acceptable amount of money for weapons-related activities. And then it happens again on the back end, where they have to tell Congress, once the budget has come from the White House and goes to Congress, for Congress to start their process of passing this NDAA, uh, they have to say whether or not there is a sufficient amount of money for weapons-related activities. So what people are afraid of is that this sort of exerts an undue amount of control over a Department of Energy organization from the Department of Defense. Because essentially, if, if the Secretary of Defense comes in and says, hey, we're not spending enough money on nuclear weapons, it's going to cause a huge problem amongst congressmen as they put together the, the National Defense Authorization Act for the year. This is a particular problem because weapons-related activities have been so inefficient. As it turns out, it's this $2.1 billion that was not included and that the Trump administration had to later retroactively add to their budget request to Congress is largely to deal with cost overruns and inefficiencies, not actual new weapons capabilities or developments. And the crazy thing is, is that this was a 20% increase in weapons production capabilities or, or activities compared to the previous budget year. So undue influence, uh, you know, whether or not the Department of Defense is having too much of a role in how much money we're spending on nuclear weapons. That's the question. What can the Biden administration do about it? Well, the Biden administration still gets to propose what is on that budget. They still get to propose which weapon systems are necessary and which ones are not. Uh, I know that all of us here at the center think that there's a lot of waste in the National Defense Authorization Act, especially the nuclear weapons parts of it, that can be cut. 
So I think that the Biden administration actually has a great amount of leeway to cut big nuclear weapons programs from the next budget. And it won't really matter whether or not the Nuclear Weapons Council agrees with that or not. The Biden administration still gets to propose what they want to do when it comes to nuclear weapons. And I think they can and should make big reductions there. I know that's a very convoluted answer, but it's a very interesting, very wonky question. And I hope that I've done an okay job of making it make sense. Wow. Um, seems like we really have a lot of work to do when it comes to tamping down on nuclear weapons spending. And there's a, a lot involved in making that happen. Okay, so let's move on now to questions not directly related to the incoming administration. Joel from Albuquerque wants to know, do subcritical tests of nuclear materials and modeling completely describe all phases of a multi-stage nuclear weapon detonation? Alex, do you want to answer Joel's question? Yeah, sure thing. I assume this question is about sort of, you know, is our stockpile stewardship program the, the mechanism by which we maintain safety, security, effectiveness of our nuclear arsenal? Is it working? Are we able to learn the things we need to learn about our nuclear weapons via the stockpile stewardship program? And I would say yes. Our Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Energy, lab directors have uh, certified to Congress and the president, you know, year after year that stockpile stewardship is working. Uh, we actually know more about our nuclear weapons now that we're not blowing them up than we did before. It's a scientific marvel. It's a, it's allowed us to maintain our stockpile, to maintain a deterrent for ourselves and for our allies without having to engage in explosive nuclear testing. Long story short, in a nutshell, stockpile stewardship is, uh, is working and I believe it'll continue to work. I, I have a lot of faith in the expertise of our scientists working on these issues. Interesting. Okay, Jeff, here's a great question for you from Ethan from Romulus, Michigan. He writes, it's my understanding that arms controllers have argued the deployment of the W76-2 is redundant and dangerous. Redundant because we already have tactical nuclear capabilities and dangerous because of its extremely low yield, which raises usability concerns. My question is, if the W76-2 is redundant, i.e. adds no new capabilities to our nuclear arsenal, how can we claim it adds to the danger of nuclear use? These two arguments seem at odds. Jeff, can you answer that and start off by saying what the W76-2 is? Yeah, this is an incredibly important and timely question at this moment right now. So first of all, what is the W76-2? The W76-2 is a warhead modification to the W76 nuclear warhead which is fitted on uh, strategic ballistic missile submarines. The W76-2 is a modification of that warhead that is a low yield design variant. So instead of being several hundred kilotons, it's only about seven kilotons. So I'm gonna try to break this down into a couple of points to sort of make this easier to understand. First and foremost, this does add a new capability to the arsenal. This is a sea launched tactical nuclear weapon. Now, the United States does have tactical nuclear weapons already. We, we maintain a couple hundred of them in Europe, but during the 90s, we took all of the naval tactical weapons under George H.W. Bush out of the Navy. So this is actually a big tactical doctrine shift. Second, the way in which these weapons are deployed, and this is a tactical weapon, a low-yield weapon on a strategic platform, does open up a whole new can of worms. What do I mean by that? 
The Ohio nuclear submarines are strategic platforms. They maintain, and, and this is really important distinction here, nuclear weapons of the several hundred kiloton variety. These are the strategic deterrence weapons. These are meant to ensure our second strike capability. These are nuclear submarines that patrol for many months out at sea as quietly and as low impact as possible so that nobody knows where they are, so that in the event of a nuclear war, these weapons are always there. They always ensure the ability of the United States to respond. Now, the important difference here is that by putting a tactical weapon on one of those submarines, it changes the entire force posture, potentially. So one, if we have to take a nuclear submarine out of its deterrent posture to use one of these weapons, one of these small, less than deterrent weapons, does that open up a hole in our deterrent posture? And two, it raises a discrimination problem for our adversaries. So the Russians and the Chinese detect a ballistic missile launch from a U.S. submarine, and they know that there are no U.S. conventional ballistic missiles out there. We don't have a conventional armed ballistic missile. They know that these missiles just have nukes on them. And that leaves them with just minutes to decide, hey, is this a really big nuke that's overflying my country, or is this just a small nuke? And I say that at that point, deterrence has failed. Because if the roles were reversed, I can guarantee you that everyone in the United States would be clamoring to say, hey, we got we to gotta launch a counterattack here. We don't have time to, to wait and see if this is a small mushroom cloud or a big mushroom cloud. And I think that it's just one more thing to get really at what you're saying here. The final point that I want to make is, is perhaps even the bigger point. Just because something is redundant but more usable doesn't mean that it's any less dangerous. Usability in itself is dangerous. Using a nuke would in all likelihood provoke a nuclear response. So we must ensure that the usability threshold for nuclear weapons remains incredibly high. Because once we start down that escalation ladder, once we start down that rabbit hole, there's potentially no stopping it. Just because it's a small nuke doesn't mean that somebody won't respond with two small nukes, or three, or four, or maybe one big nuke. And like Reagan said, this is the second time I've used this quote now, a nuclear war cannot be won, and so it must never be fought. We can never, ever imagine a possibility, and we're using a small nuke, is somehow better than using a large nuke. We can never allow ourselves to think that one of these weapons is more usable than the other. Yeah, I agree with Jeff there. And I'll just remind folks that uh, a low-yield nuclear weapons explosion, that's what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those were low, considered in, in modern terms, low-yield nuclear weapons. So this is weapons exponentially bigger than you know our largest conventional weapons. So the term low yield, I think, sometimes uh, makes people think, oh, it's like just a mini nuke and it's no big deal. We're still talking about city destroyers, which is why we have to, as Jeff said, have to absolutely do everything we can to prevent the lowering uh, of potential use threshold. And in the end, uh, I really think that the term redundant here uh, was incorrect. It's, it's not that people were saying it was redundant, people were saying it was unnecessary. Uh, that, that it was a capability that we didn't need rather than a capability we already had. Okay, that's a, a really important distinction. Thank you both for those great answers. Alrighty, Alex, here's a, another one for you that came in from Instagram. Does nuclear deterrence work? Alex? <laughs> this is like, this question can spawn thousands of pages 
but it is a really critical question. We've set up an entire framework for our security, for the security of our allies, based on the idea that this theory of deterrence is going to work. Has it worked so far? Yes. Have we been incredibly lucky over and over again uh, in the sense of, of times deterrence almost didn't work? Yes. The law of odds simply aren't on our side here in the idea that the longer nuclear weapons exist, the more nuclear weapons there are in the world. One is you know, eventually going to detonate again, and that's just the law of odds. So that's why we engage in arms control, nuclear risk reduction, to try to reduce those chances as far as we can. But we constantly need to be reworking our theory of, of what is deterrence. And I think we've been trying to make the case that deterrence is more than, than nuclear weapons. It's our conventional capabilities. It's our economic and sanctions capabilities. It's our diplomatic efforts. It's our alliances. These are all part of how we avert mass conflict on a global scale. So we really have to be rethinking for the 21st century what deterrence looks like going forward and not necessarily assume that, that our current state of, of just kind of a mutually assured destruction um, is never going to fail us. That's absolutely right. My all-time favorite quote on this is JFK, right? Every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads and capable of being cut at any moment by accident, miscalculation, or by madness. I think that that, that sort of sums it up. It, it's not whether or not best intentions or the best practices or the best theories are involved. Any possibility that a weapon can go off is still too great of a risk to take. These are the most powerful and destructive weapons ever created by mankind, and they are just too dangerous for us not to do everything in our power to ensure that never happens. So speaking of deterrence, Dav from New York City asks, what is the imminent response of the U.S. nuclear policy to the present operational threat posed by Russian hypersonic nuclear warhead systems such as Avangard and Zircon? Jeff? Sure. This is an interesting question. Um, I think that a lot of people have been frightened and concerned by the potential development of new, uh, as we call them, exotic Russian nuclear weapons. This includes hypersonics. This includes their crazy nuclear-powered cruise missile that exploded during a development phase uh, a couple of years ago, made headlines around the world. The imminent response of U.S. nuclear policy to these, though, is simple and straightforward. One, deterrence still, as we just talked about. Uh, you either believe in deterrence or you don't. So, you know, the possibility of building more and more dangerous nuclear weapons uh, doesn't get rid of the fact that the other guy still has thousands of them, too. But also, and more importantly, our ability to restrain these weapons, to keep them out of the Russians' hands, uh, is arms control. Uh, under New START, hypersonic, I think three out of the four Russian exotic weapon systems, including their hypersonic, their proposed hypersonic weapon systems, are covered under the New START treaty. Uh, they would still not be able to field those um, in numbers necessary to make a difference. Uh, it would still limit the ability of them to mount them as ICBMs, uh, as ballistic missiles, um, so, you know, what is, what is the U.S. nuclear policy answer to this? It's the same as before. We need to negotiate effective arms control agreements to keep the most dangerous weapons and developing dangerous weapons out of deployed arsenals around the globe. It's, it's just that simple. It's, it's block and tackle diplomacy 
to keep the worst from happening. Wow, yeah, that's um, that's a lot to think about. Okay, just a few more questions to go. Alex, here's one for you. Hillary from Seattle writes, I just read the story about the cybersecurity firm responsible for many government agency contracts has been hacked by a foreign country. Does that danger have any impact on the military deployment of nuclear weapons? I seem to remember the nuclear launch system itself isn't internet connected, but the military government systems that influence are. Or could they hack our military spy drones? Great questions. Alex? Yeah, absolutely great questions. These emerging technologies, these cyber threats are presenting problems throughout our system, whether it's, you know, the safety of our election uh, to our nuclear weapons. And we've really got to be reassessing how we're working on all of these issues, uh, knowing that we've had this fundamental change in the environment brought on by the information age. We do work on toughening up our uh, our command and control systems, uh, hardening against uh, potential cyber threats. Uh, fortunately, that's an issue that that has not been sort of touched by the partisan politics that have touched on a lot of nuclear issues. Uh, across the board, everybody agrees that we uh, should be investing in these kinds of capabilities to you know protect our command and control systems. So you'll see that continue into the future. Uh, we also need to get people inside the government working on this who are actual cyber experts, people who are, who are well-versed in these technologies, who can bring that expertise to bear on sort of classic arms control that's dealing, you know, with heavy weaponry. And, um, and we need to do it quick. All right. Super interesting. Okay, here's our last question for both of you. Um, and my apologies to the one person who submitted a question wanting to know how Jeff keeps his beard so tidy yet robust. Um, we did run out of time and weren't able to answer that question, but you can you can ask Jeff that yourself. The last question is this. What are you most looking forward to in 2021, both from a national security perspective and a personal perspective? Jeff, would you and your tidy yet robust beard like to answer first? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, so many things. It's hard to just pick one. Look, I am so excited for the United States to begin taking international security seriously again and to right-size what I think is an outrageous defense budget over the past couple of years. In this year, in 2020, in a year which more Americans have died due to a virus here at home than all the American combat deaths in World War I, Vietnam, the Korean War, the War on Terror, and the First Gulf War, I really think it's time for us to sort of right-size that budget. It is outrageous that we're spending $740 billion on things that have not kept Americans safe. Personally, I'm excited to just see all my coworkers again. I'm excited to go to a bar and have a drink with the people that I love. and. Um, as a West Coaster, I'm really excited to hopefully being able to to go out and visit my family again, um, which is something that all of us here share. Uh, yeah, so I'm excited about the return of, of competent, boring technocrats doing the important, often quiet, off the, the front page kind of uh, work of the government to... Uh, deal with all the challenges we're facing from climate change to structural changes to how we've been doing um, 
national security in general, how we've been thinking about national security, but uh, the return of competence. And I'm excited for the guy who controls the nuclear weapons to spend less time on Twitter and, and more time thinking about how to reduce nuclear threats. From a personal perspective, I, I'm excited for the vaccine to be distributed first to first responders and healthcare workers and to our seniors and on down the line and, and allow us to get back to seeing our families. I'm really grateful for all the work of um, the scientists and epidemiologists and everybody who, who put this work in, into creating these vaccines at, at a record pace. And, and we should be so thankful uh, that they had the means. And, and we have to think long term about how we can uh, further invest in our scientists, in our health structures uh, to make sure we're better prepared for something like this in the future. Wow, those are both great answers. And Jeff, speaking as your coworker, I echo that I am very eager to see you guys in person again. So it seems like we all have a lot to look forward to in 2021. Thank you both for taking the time to answer questions from our listeners from across the country. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I hope you enjoyed what our experts had to say. Jeff, do you want to close us out? Sure. Thanks, Anna. And thanks again to all of you for listening to Nukes of Hazard. I am incredibly happy with the amount of great questions we received this year, and unfortunately that means we weren't able to get to some of them. If that was the case with your question, I apologize, but I hope that you will keep submitting questions to us via social media, which we will try to answer in future episodes. I think it pretty much goes without saying, but this has been a year full of surprises for everyone, including all of us here at Nukes of Hazard. But we are really proud of the work that we've done, and we hope that you've enjoyed listening to it. We've got a great list of episodes planned for 2021, and if you want to be the first to know when new episodes of this podcast come out, be sure to subscribe to Nukes of Hazard on Apple or Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. That will help us ensure that we can continue getting funding to produce informative and entertaining content, episode after episode, and spreading the word to more people who can help us reduce nuclear threats. Nukes of Hazard is a production of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It is produced by Rowan Humphreys, with help from Anna Schumann and Alexandra Bell. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nukes of Hazard, that's Nukes underscore of underscore hazard, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thank you so much for listening, and here's to an outstanding 2021. <laughs>